My guest today is Josh Packard, Executive Director of Springtide Research Institute. Josh is a sociologist who studies the religious lives of young people. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, happy to be here, Scott. I really appreciate it. One of your principal sort of working uh, hypotheses, and please feel free to reframe that characterization uh, if, if you like, but um, one of your sort of working hypotheses is that what we're seeing in terms of the decline in connection to formal religious institutions among, say, Gen Z is at least, at least partly a reflection not of Gen Z just abandoning religion altogether, but just uh, the way that religion looks uh, among that group, uh, just kind of looking different. I wonder if we could just start out by talking about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at Springtide, we we really honed in on 13 to 25 year olds and and sitting at that intersection between their religious and daily lives, trying to figure out, you know, where do they ask what we call life's most important questions. Some of those are explicitly religious and, and young people would name them as religious, but some of them are basically religious and they wouldn't get named as such by young people. You know, what should I do with my life? You know, how should I treat other people? What's going to happen when I die? And I think, you know, that as you characterized it, you know, we've seen plenty of research from Pew, Gallup, others, General Social Survey, and, and, and as well as social scientists in the academic space, documenting what often gets characterized by the media as a decline of religion. And I think it's a little bit of a misnomer, because I think what we're actually seeing is this, this disengagement from institutional religion. And that's not just true for young people, it's true for all age groups. And, and has, that trend has been increasing over the last few decades. But it's that that qualifier of institutional religion is really critical here. So we, we have uh, now nearly 18,000 surveys collected over the last year and a half from young people. We've done nearly 200 interviews and, and we see uh, young people still, you know, really, really interested, intensely interested in religious concerns, navigating, figuring out, constructing their religious worlds, but also at the same time, and pretty overwhelmingly not interested in walking into a brick and mortar, you know, congregational or institutional setting to explore those concerns. Cool. Uh, okay, so a couple of technical questions, and then I want to come back to this. Uh, well, they're technical for me as a non-sociologist. Sure. <laughs> maybe, maybe not for you. Um, and then I want to come back to this uh, uh, idea of uh, walking into a brick and mortar church mm -hmm. and uh, interesting ways in which those kinds of questions might interact with our circumstances uh, at yeah. the moment. Uh, but okay, so when we say Gen Z, what, what, what age range are we talking about? So Gen Z is not entirely formulated yet, but at Springtide, we're really in that 13 to 25-ish age range. So it's a, okay. it's a fairly big category. Um, we don't ask the same questions to 14-year-olds about their career prospects, for example, that we asked to a 24-year-old, but that's the, that's the group we're concerned with. So you're getting a little bit into then what some would characterize as the youngest cohorts of the millennial generation. Would you is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, Gen Z is still a little bit unformulated yet, but I mean, it's taking us at Springtide, we are really focused on that 13 to 25-year-old. So that can take us up to, you know, sort of the, the youngest millennials. Um, but the reason we choose that is because it's like 13 and that threshold is, is when we see a lot of uh, rites of passage. So in the religious sphere, we see bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, confirmations, et cetera, happening around that time. Um, and 
And then at 25, that's when most social scientists would say that we've actually, that is the age of emerging adulthood now. Um, as as uh, higher education has expanded to more people, that's also meant that, it, that, that there are more people in, in colleges that are training for jobs that are in uh, sort of financially marginalized situations. So it takes them longer to get through sometimes. So by 25, we can say like, all right, brain development is completed. Social development is completed. Most people have moved out of their houses by that point. So that's why we focus on that. 13 to 25 year old age range. Okay. Okay, great. So, and then the other uh, sort of uh, setup question before we come back to the brick and mortar mm-hmm. walking into an in, institutionalized setting. So your, your, your um, sort of central working thesis as I've characterized it has, as I can, as far as I can tell, two components. Uh, one of which is that uh, Gen Z appear to be disengaging from institutional religion. Right. And the second part of the, the, the thesis is that uh, some subset of those are not disengaging from religion altogether. Correct. Right. Yes. Okay. So I mean, do, you a, actually, yeah. do you actually have positive evidence that they're not disengaging from religion altogether? Or do you just see no evidence that they are disengaging? From religion? <laughs> no, that's a really good question. So um, every fall we put out the state of religion and young people. And so in the state of religion and young people 2020, we were really digging into these categories of affiliated and unaffiliated. And the, what we found is that the, the picture here is way more complex than what most people are giving um, giving it credit for. So in other words, like, you know, we're seeing unaffiliated young people express, you know, relatively high, I mean, higher than you might expect levels of like reading sacred texts, um, attending religious services, uh, even, you know, claiming that they are religious people, they're just unaffiliated. Um, so we see it's similarly with, with affiliated people, we see all kinds of like, just because you're affiliated, like 52% of young people who claim affiliation, do not trust religious institutions. Like that's a total deal on its own, right? So the reality is just that we see a lot more diversity within those categories than we might have thought. I mean, I think most most of the characterization of you know affiliation and disaffiliation has focused on the difference between those categories. Affiliated people are somehow different than unaffiliated people, especially young folks. And what our research suggests is that the variability within those categories is at least as great, if not greater, than the variability between them. So part of the sort of evidence for sort of distancing from uh, institutionalized religion, walking into brick and mortar churches and so on, what, what did the evidence trend look like, uh, like pre pandemic lockdown? So pre 2020, <laughs> what did those trends look like? And I, you know, um, I know you're a sociologist and not a psychic, but, but what, what would you, if it's, it's totally unfair question, right? But I mean, what would you, how would you expect the, oh. that, that trend to look, uh, say coming out? Cause I, cause one of the things I sort of suspect is going to happen, right? I'm a philosopher. So I just speculate, you know, <laughs> I just have to identify that it's speculation and then I'm fine. Right. Uh, so, so, um, one of the things I sort of, uh, wouldn't be shocked to see is sort of as the COVID restrictions gradually lift, some folks in predominantly white evangelical spaces are going to sort of look around and realize where, Hey, where'd everybody go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the only difference here between you and me is that um, I'll speculate, but with data, <laughs> right? So the, 
no, I don't think that so, social scientists in general aren't really doing our jobs if, if we're not able to look at the trends that led us up to one point and extrapolate with some degree of certainty you know, from that point forward. Obviously, COVID adds a wrinkle in that, that it does call, it, it adds a certain degree of uncertainty to that, that, you know, what the prevailing trends were leading up to this time last year was that there's no reason to think that um, attendance trends were going to go in a different direction. They were going to, they were just going to keep going down. Um, the, um, you know, in fact, I think, you know, there have been some studies that I've seen that have like shifted gears to like, why document this? Like every two years, we ask the same questions about people attending religious gatherings. And it's like, we don't, we can do that every four years. Like we don't need to keep documenting the demise <laughs> on a minute by minute basis, but I don't think it is a demise. I mean, it really is just a, it will be a demise if people don't do things, but it doesn't have to be. The, I, I think what we're looking at post COVID is probably, is true for religion. Like it's probably true for everything else. You're going to see a massive bump right away. People are just going to be excited in the, in the next three, four, five, six months, especially maybe through the end of the year of taking, taking like Christians through Christmas will probably be a, a big marker um, because a lot of them, you know, missed that over the last year. Uh, and Christians are the largest group, obviously, in this in our country. But then after that, I think we're going to revert back to the, the trend that we had seen, largely because I don't really, I, I, I can't really, I don't have a lot of faith that religious leaders will see that for what it is. Instead, what I think they'll probably see is a whole bunch of articles and podcasts and teachings coming out in the fall of saying like, the people are back. And, you know, it's a, that will be a little bit of like confirmation bias, because that's what they'll be wanting to see. But I don't think it's I don't think it's going to stick around if it, it unless people dramatically alter and learn from what has happened during the pandemic, uh, what they're doing moving forward. So sort of like almost you could just take uh, point A, bisecting line on the on the slope right <laughs> and then point b bisecting line on the slope and between a and b is like covid and covid related restrictions and you just cut that out and put you know put 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 it back together in the middle and then like you're just going to see the same kind of slope is that is that, is that, that the i mean you know the, the only reason that you sense hesitation in my voice is for this so the Religion in America is different than religion in a lot of other places, particularly Europe. So there's no state-sponsored religion here. Obviously, your taxes, religious bodies get tax breaks, but they do not get tax dollars. So if they don't, um, as like Stark and Bainbridge and others have pointed out for a long time, like if religious groups don't compete effectively, there's nothing to prop them up. They go away. And, and denominations and, and churches, especially in congregations, individual, you know, synagogues, mosques and, and Christian churches, like they actually do fold on a, on a relatively consistent basis. So because of that, then religion in this country and for a whole host of other cultural reasons, it tends to have these periods of innovation. Now, they're not always the most predictable things and especially like pandemics or we just haven't had enough data points of pandemics to really understand what kind of influence that's going to have but the hesitation in my voice is because that history does exist um and i think that ethos and spirit and those structural factors that compel that innovation do exist and so it's possible uh that we'll see you know that same sort of thing happen again and and you won't be able to squish that chart together uh, you know, and just slice out those bisecting lines. But I'll, I, well, the one thing I'm confident about is that if people do in 2022 the same things that they did in 2019, then you can absolutely just squash the lines together. Right, it's it's not going to just go back on its own. So I wonder if you're, 
if your research, this is, this is getting into kind of like, maybe this is, um, maybe this is more to do with how things function in an, in, in a particular group, like a single church setting. But I, but I think that this is playing out in a lot of churches, uh, across the country, um, where you've got some younger people like millennials, I, I guess we're not that young anymore, but, uh, millennials <laughs> and, 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 uh, and younger who, uh, let's just say whatever was going on before 2020, right? Um, you know, a lot of us were, were attuned to questions about uh, institutional justice, so, social justice, and yeah. so on. Uh, but prior to 2020, uh, 2020, but um, 2020 is a, it seems like a watershed, right? In terms it, of, it of concern about those things. And then you've got the folks with the money, right? <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. older Gen X, baby boomers, and so on. And they say, yeah, we don't want this, right? right. And so I, I see a lot of churches having, that facing this dilemma. Do we, do we choose uh, our survival financially or do we choose the future, right? Do we choose to have like spiritual offspring, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does your research tell you about how that's how that's playing out? Because I imagine it was it, it it didn't just start in uh, 2020. Just 2020 threw it into sharper relief. Sure. Yeah, I, it's a it's a good question, and I think in some ways, like the the natural cycle of people losing confidence in institutions leads to these long periods, often rejection and deconstruction. And I think that that's a, a, a not to be with an overly broad brush, but I think that's a lot of what we've seen from, from generations, uh, uh, Gen X um, and millennials has been this combination of rejection and deconstruction, taking things apart in, in sometimes some really good ways, you know, obviously in ways that are views of social justice and, and have led to openings for people to be more inclusive. The, the, but it's really hard to know what to, to get to your dollars and cents question. It's really hard to know what to fund. You know, when, when everything is criticism and critique, it's really hard to know what to build. And what our data show for, for younger generations, 13 to 25-year-olds, like I've mentioned, the, I, I don't think, I, you know, I think the right metaphor for them is really, um, they're builders. You know, they, they're sort of our, our, and we'll be writing about this this fall in the State of Religion and Young People 2021, but the data is already coming through to show that they are, in many cases, like picking up the various pieces of faith expressions, traditions, meaning-making systems that are lying all around them and trying to figure out how to put them together. The, the problem is, I think if there is a problem, is that they're often doing that without any really good guides. So they're disconnected from these institutions. And in many cases, they have parents who aren't super duper knowledgeable or interested in playing that role. And so you've got a lot of young people sort of just wandering around, you know, if you, if you could you know, imagine like sort of wandering around the spiritual wilderness, figuring out how to like make a shelter. And they, they really are, are sort of hungering for that. But the good news there is that I think that's really fundable. Like, I, I, think, I think older generations, I think everybody can get excited about that because it's the creation and building of something new. And it's not going to look like what it used to look like. But I do think that it's a thing that people can get behind. Could you just talk more about that? 
Yeah. So when we interview young people, we hear them saying things all the time. Like, well, and we have our own podcast called The Voices of Young People. We put every study that we do, we get young folks to sort of show you a like a whole picture of somebody's life behind the data. So it's not just disconnected data points. And you can hear it in the interviews. You can hear it in those podcasts as they're sort of casting around. You see them like, like for season three, we interviewed a young Jewish man who's like grew up in the institution, bar mitzvah, everything. His faith is very important to him. And he, he says that, you know, some of the strongest ways that he lives out his faith is through community service, which is a core tenet and value of the Jewish faith, but is not necessarily like an institutional expression of it. He says then also that he, he thinks it's really important for his faith that he meditates before his baseball game, which is not, a, you know, is, is that maybe there's room in the Jewish faith for that expression, but it is certainly not the thing that, that makes up um, the sort of dominant expression of Judaism. And we heard things like that from young people over and over and over again. Now, when, when they're left alone, in this case, he's had really good guides to figure out how to integrate those things into what I think is an actual faith system. But when, when they're left alone, I think it does, for worse, end up looking like what Robert Bella described in the early 80s with Sheila's, you know, where it's a young person sort of at a buffet picking pieces of different faith traditions and expressions that they like or that make sense to them today, or at worst, that affirm all the choices that they're making in their life. And that's not really a system, right? Like young people, whether it's faith or any place else, like they need accountability, they need mentors, they need guides for these things. And so that's, that's actually sort of my fear, though, is that we leave them alone and then they, they don't end up creating anything that's really very durable. And my concern <laughs> is that with some of the fundamentalist elements in evangelicalism at the opposite extreme, the sort of institutionalized uh, version of mm -hmm. this sort of buffet where you just pick whatever happens to suit you based on the needs of the moment, you see fundamentalists effectively sort of, you know, changing their, their moral commitments, although they purport to defend objective moral truth, they're changing their moral commitments every decade or so, right? <laughs> uh, and so it's like, there are folks on the one hand who just wanna do the buffet thing sort of out on their own, right? And then there are folks uh, at the opposite extreme who wanna treat, say, the Bible in the context of the Christian tradition as a sort of buffet of proof texts right mm -hmm. and those are those extremes are sort of like pulling things apart and then there are folks in the middle who are like wait a second like no neither of those is good at all right? <laughs> yeah no, no, well neither of those are particularly helpful right i think they're both really understandable though sure right like I, I can i can get it i you know what actually really sort of irritates me though um scott is when i so i'll hear a lot of times when i give talks about our data and, and the reports that we put out at springtide and if the if this buffet idea comes up and they're like, well, yeah, young people just won't commit to anything. And, and my point is like, if you have an explanation for the faith lives of young people that ultimately blames young people for some problem that you see in them, that's just not a thing that I can abide. Like we don't, you know, we don't, that, that is not, uh, whether it's their social media use or that you don't think they're serious enough or whatever it is, like, I don't, we can't, we can't have an explanation that comes back to blaming a 15 year old for the state of their lives. There's a reason why we have ages of consent, like, you know, for yeah. other things like those. Are, so I don't think it's quite necessarily the same as what we see with those uh, on the sort of other end of that on the fundamentalist side, where I think mostly there we're talking about people who are 
full-fledged cognizant, you know, adults. Um, I think young people need to be afforded a little bit more, to use a, a very Christian term here, to, to be afforded a little bit more grace and to understand that like these things are in construct for them. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay, good, good. All right. Yeah. So I'm glad. I certainly didn't mean to. to no, I didn't uh, think you did. I, but that, that comes the, the up. 15 year olds who are picking and choosing are sort of right. like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. No, but that comes up a lot when I talk, uh, you know, like when I'm giving presentations. Yeah, that's a really, that's a bizarre feature of sort of the, the culture war mentality, isn't it? Right. This idea that culture really matters. But then like, you know, 15 year olds are ultimately responsible for all their choices because what culture doesn't matter like what <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's i think that's a really uh i mean that's a very funny way of saying it but yeah i think that's right you know i mean the weird thing is that the same the, the same adults who will criticize young people for their lack of like rigorous faith commitment um i'm putting that in quotes uh if you they're not it's like there's a special space reserved for them when they're thinking about young people and religion that doesn't line up with the rest of the way that they think about young people. So you can ask every, every adult in the country, um, probably in the world, if you ask them about a 14 year old, you know, who they're dating, do you expect them to be dating that person when they're 16 or 17? Everybody be like, no, that doesn't, I mean, maybe they will, but probably not. If you ask a 16 year old what they want to be when they grow up, you don't really think that they're going to be center fielder for the Yankees or like whatever, you know, or an astronaut, maybe, you know, you expect that by the time they're 18, I mean, I'm wrapping up my last semester of teaching at a university. I mean, my advisees don't keep the same majors, let alone the same careers. We, in other words, the predominant experience and understanding of being a teenager is, is change. We expect exploration, experimentation. We expect you're figuring out who you are and that that's going to result in like, you know, some dramatic changes to your personality as well as some like, what kind of clothes are you wearing today kind of changes. But when it comes to their faith lives, we have sort of like expected that, you know, once in a, you know, you've been through confirmation. Now you're a Christian forever, right? Like that, as if that doesn't, as if that is not also subject to the same forces that all of these other aspects of their lives are. And then, so we just sort of let them go. I mean, you know, there's not, even in a sacramental tradition like Catholicism, there's not really good sacraments in place between, you know, say 14 or 15 years old and the age of marriage, which gets pushed later and later. So you've got this 10, 15 year gap sometimes where the church doesn't have a formal way of engaging with you. 100, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, that would have been a much shorter gap, much less time for something to, to happen, quote unquote, right? The church had a, a much more sort of like a regular process of staying in touch with you. And that's true for other faith expressions as well. And, and I just, I, I, I just think it's, um, it's inconsistent and sort of um, wrongheaded to think that their faith lives are not in flux during these years in the same ways that the rest of their lives are. And I, I wonder what, I'm, I'm sort of, I keep asking you questions about how different generations relate to one another, uh, which I, re <laughs> I realize may not, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how much of a factor that is in your, in your uh, research, but one thing I wonder about is how much of the, um, the disconnect, right, has to do with just a failure to understand the, uh, the, the factors uh, involved, yeah. right? So you, you see a lot of this uh, sort of cultural conservative uh, pushback on younger folks is like, you know, you need to, 
move out of your mom's basement and like start a family and get a full-time job with healthcare and so on and so on. And you got a bunch of like 27 year olds saying like, I mean, I would love to do that. Right. But I went and got a college degree. That'd be exactly what I'm supposed to do. Um, Wait, so should I move out of my mom's basement first? Like before I start a family or like, uh, because the thing is like all of your, you know, uh, protectionist zoning regulations that are designed to artificially drive up your property values are kind of kind of cramping my my style here you know <laughs> so uh i don't know maybe maybe we could work on that or i guess i could move to like north dakota where property values are really low i don't know uh yeah. but but it, it, it's just like it, it's there's there just seems to be a disconnect with like understanding that you know houses now cost more than like ten dollars or whatever they were back in the, you know, the 60s <laughs> <laughs> well look i do so in as we, you know, at Springtide really try to be an actionable research institute, meaning that we produce things that are not just interesting, but things that are usable. That is always our goal. So out of the state of religion of young people 2020, this framework of relational authority emerged. So if you really want to have authority in the life of a young person, you can't just come with your expertise. Um, that's not, they're going to shut that down immediately. You also can't just be their friend. They don't want you to be their friend. So we, we lay out this the sort of framework for how young people told us in the research that adults can really play a key role in their lives. The key, like the primary thing, the component of that, there were five, is listening. You know, what they said over and over again, the fastest way to build trust with a young person is to listen to them. And adults just mostly don't listen to them. I mean, what they told us is that the predominant experience of, of their interactions with adults was of being dismissed and not taken seriously, not listened to. And so I think you're right. Like there is not a lot of listening going on either in, in individual life terms, like our interviewees are talking about, or in these structural ways that you're referring to. You know, when, when I think about my students and home ownership, you know, they, they laugh at the idea. So, you know, you think about a 20, think about a 22 year old right now, right? Um, or anybody who's between the age of like 20 to 23. So they lived through the 2008 financial collapse. They watched their parents in many cases lose everything. Um, including their homes, um, and in part be- because <laughs> because large institutions were not just negligent, but were actually predatory. So then you flash forward and like, like, okay, well, we could overcome that because it was just this one thing, this one time. And then you watch the failure of government to be able to respond to the global pandemic, and and you've got like not only their job opportunities, but now their parents again in the space of you know less than 15 years dealing with many of the same pressures and consequences. And then, and then, so you want to get them to like trust that this employer has their best interests in mind for the next 25 or 30 years, and that they shouldn't be also working a side gig to sort of hedge their bets against the collapse of this company, or they should invest in a home. Like none of that makes any sense to my students. Like they, they understand it logically, but, but their lived experience tells them that that is not a reliable way to go through life. And you're right, that is a distinct difference from somebody who's 50 or 60 years old who had a relatively long run, not without bumps in the road, but a relatively long run of institutional stability. So just quick anecdote, right? So yeah. in ethics, I'm talking about, we're, we're, um, we're in political philosophy and we're talking about concerns around allocations of resources and healthcare comes up. And this one student, it's a tight-knit group. They've taken several classes with me, smaller class size. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I, I, now I have no idea whether this is factually accurate, but this is what, this is what a student said. Sure. Um, she, uh, 
the student says uh, she she discloses to the group that uh, because of a health condition that she has, she's permitted to stay on like a, a serious chronic lifelong health condition. She's permitted to stay on her parents' uh, health insurance indefinitely. Mm-hmm. These are now these are kids. These are like good students. Some of them are like going to medical school, right? Uh, they're getting ready to graduate from college. Sharp kid. There was an a sort of collective gasp. She was sitting in the back of the room when she said this, you know, I can stay on my parents' health insurance indefinitely because of this chronic health condition I have. There was, <gasps> and a bunch of kids turned around and I heard several kids audibly say, lucky. Yeah, like she won the lottery, right? Yeah, like how, how messed up is that? that these kids are envious. They're doing all the stuff they're supposed to do and they're envious of their classmates' chronic health condition. Right. That guarantees yeah. her access to health insurance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not... It is not. It is not that difficult. I think when when we do practice um, what one young person described to us as radical empathy, which is a commitment, you know, really this commitment to understanding the person across from you, uh, not just first but always, then it it really does, I think, change the way that you begin to see those realities. Because I I I do think that you know there there really is not. It is not just a difference in degree. It is a difference in kind the experiences that people under 25 have had and people over say 55 or 60. I mean, they're just, they're they're just fundamentally different kinds of worlds that they've lived in. Y'all don't just sort of hand out information or collect interesting data points you want you want action right you want or yeah. actionable information right so right. could you talk a little bit more about that like what what kinds of normative proposals sure. you have in mind yeah so everything that we like whenever we at springtide speak in a normative sense whenever we use the word should that's our rule of thumb we're doing that from the standpoint of the social sciences so if we're talking about how to be a good listener well we're turning not to some sacred text which are important but rather we're turning to communication theory. So what, does com- what, what, what do communication scholars tell us about the ways uh, that nonverbal you know, uh, behaviors impact your, uh, how you convey that you're listening to somebody? For example, um, you know, when, when we're trying to understand attendance patterns at religious uh, gatherings, we're looking to what are the patterns of attendance at other social institutions from a sociological perspective. So all of our normative advice giving comes from those fields. And the, one of the biggest studies in this area that we put out was called, is called Belonging, Reconnecting America's Loneliest Generation. And it's a, you wouldn't necessarily believe this. Um, we didn't until we saw the data first from Cigna, the big health conglomerate, and then replicated in our study that the youngest generation is the, is the loneliest and most isolated that we have in America, not only right now, but they have higher levels of loneliness and isolation than we have ever been recorded. And, and that is normally something that is usually when researchers do this work, it's the oldest generation for pretty obvious reasons. Using the standard scale out of UCLA from the late 70s, um, that's been you know, updated and modified a little bit, but pretty good data you know, for the last 40 years. The, in that research, though, we were able to show that like the traditional protective factors, attendance. So, you know, in other words, I'm, I'm on the football team. So therefore I feel like I belong to the football team. And so therefore I'm not lonely. Like that's been erased. Attendance doesn't matter. 
even attendance at religious gatherings is not a protective factor against isolation and loneliness. It's relationships with somebody and particularly a trusted adult at that place. That's what matters. And so they were able to, like, we were able to actually tease out this process um, for belonging, called, we called noticed, named, and known. And it was really this three-stage process that emerged from the interviews of the young people after documenting it through the surveys where they told us like, okay, so here's what it, here's what it means for me to feel accepted somewhere. And we are able to articulate like, all right, so the, and from there, we just build out these things. Like, how do you systematically notice a young person in the way that they're talking about? What does naming mean to them? Um, and, and ultimately, what does it lead to in this sort of belonging outcome? And what can you expect in terms of results from that? So what will keep young people, well, tell me if this is an accurate characterization. So what has the uh, greatest potential to keep young people affiliated with an institution like a church is sure. personal relationships in which they feel heard and notice named and known. Ultimately known. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's a, that's, that's exactly what the research shows pretty consistently. Um, and and so you might have that. to, yeah, it's a, so that's a good question. That's what we, that's what we try to lay out. I mean, I think that the, the there's a, there's a nuts and bolts question of, of what does it mean to notice name and know somebody? Um, and it's, and it works from, you know, from the, from the ground up of, you know, there's a whole host of ways that you can notice somebody either as an individual or as belonging to a particular group. So it matters in terms of like the language, you know, using inclusive language matters, um, not just because it's the right thing to do, but also it matters in terms of, of communicating to somebody that them and people like them belong here and are welcome here. Like that's a critical component to that. Naming somebody is, yes, it's about parts of like knowing their name. But it's more than that too, which is that you're thinking about them, including them in the group explicitly. You're making an effort to engage them consistently. And then when you get to that known part, we really reach this stage where they're so integrated into the life of the group that the group would be fundamentally different if they weren't there, mm. right? So I think about this in a very concrete way. We can think about it as, as going to the movies, right? Um, if you and your friends are going to the movies and you see somebody over there uh, who's standing by themselves, you can invite them to come along. That's noticing them. Right. And then uh, you get to this naming stage and it's like, hey, we're going to the movies. What does Josh want to see? So you're naming them. Right. But then the known part is like, oh, well, we wouldn't see that movie without Josh. It wouldn't be the same experience. Like, mm, we'll, wow. whenever Josh wants to go, like, <clears throat> we'll go with, you know, when Josh wants to. Now, if you get somebody to that known stage, which can only happen through relationship, then they are a part of that group. Now, here, let me tell you, Scott, why it's critical. So this gets us back to the like fundamental lesson in sociology. It's one of the first things from Durkheim, the first sociologists that we've known, it's been reinforced over the last century, which is that belonging precedes believing. So that we get this backwards all the time because what happens is that you can, you can try to get people to subscribe to a statement of faith or a set of beliefs or whatever, and you'll make really short-term gains, right? But if what you really want are durable, you know, faith lives that can outlast like a pandemic or moving to college or getting a job in a new city or marrying somebody. Well, it's the group that's going to bring you back to those central belief tenets. And so when we put belonging ahead of believing and make sure that they're connected first, then we were setting them up really for these like long-term quote unquote success in their faith lives or flourishing in their faith lives. So it's almost like the church exists for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we, we talked early and we started this by talking about this sort of like, boy, institutions are in trouble, but they're also really critical. I mean, it's the, like, these communities are not 
I'm not a believer that like people can go off, you know, atomized and, and sustain and nurture their faith lives through a series of like fragmented relationships. I just don't, we, I don't see any evidence for that, but it's not that I don't want it to happen. It's that I don't see the data to support that communities matter. Right. Okay. So if we've got this group of young people coming along who it might not even be right to say they're cynical about institutions. They just never had any faith in institutions in the first place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the institutions aren't going away and I don't just mean, you know, in, yeah. institutions in the, uh, that we, that we want to remain right. Like the church, but, um, institutions and institutional problems that you mm -hmm. might think the church as a, as a body might be equipped to address right? In, in institutional yeah. problems in our society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do we, uh, and this is, this is a self-interested question because this is where my research is and what oh, I sure. try to get folks to focus on is, is um, the importance of institutions, right? So it, it, I, I take it that, that young people aren't saying like, well, no, all I care about is being noticed, named and known and don't talk to me about institutions, right? So how do we, <laughs> like, like, what do we, what do we do there? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing that you know, I think is, a, is really critical for religious institutions is to understand exactly the thing that you just laid out and that we've been talking about. I mean, they're, um, by and large, most people that I encounter in, in sort of traditional religious institutions, especially in leadership roles, are really concerned with how to get young people back to church. Um, and that's a conversation that was really, would have been really useful to have in like 2008 um 2006 maybe um you know what I, what I keep trying to impress upon them as you mentioned it's like they, they this generation uh, of young people didn't leave the church they they were never raised in it to begin with they're, they're not rejecting you so i think that isn't an opportunity to like <clears throat> all right as we re-engage and if we if we keep that in mind that they don't even speak our language like you know the the, the sort of religious vocabulary both literal in terms of like what are these what do these terms mean? But also figurative in the sense of like, what is a ritual? Why does it matter? How does it connect us to people? That all needs to, that grammar needs to be rebuilt. And I think mutual, like the, as this generation looks to build things, I think the, the sort of mutually co-constructive practice of rebuilding the grammar and language of faith um, is that it is a potential pathway forward for like revitalizing these institutions in ways that can can deal with you know big social problems chief among them polarization you know from all kinds of angles but like working together on a common task is the is a is a is probably the most direct route to bring people together and, and i mean at least pre-covid right i mean the church was like with all the sort of fragmentation of everything from from values to uh, just the information that we're exposed to with mm -hmm. uh, social media platforms and so on. The church was one of the few places left where people just got together, just because they wanted to, right? Mm -hmm. uh, got <laughs> yeah. together with other people and thought about what, you know, what's valuable, right? What matters? Mm -hmm. What should we do together for some length of time? And like, you know, completed a thought. Right. Um, and, and so and so I thought, whereas I'm, you know, I can get pretty uh, cynical about what some elements of the church are up to. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I have kind of an undying hope uh, that, well, I guess I'll put it this way. 
if there if there's any institution that can actually do something about this kind of fragmentation and bring our uh, society together and and direct us toward a common horizon like the church needs to step up right because that's the church is well positioned to do this uh whether I agree. you do it or not I, is another matter right i think that there's a real opportunity coming out of this pandemic i mean think about what are, what are religious leaders essentially i mean this is a question that sociologists ask a lot you know like what is a welder basically well like a welder is a person who joins things together and fixes stuff that's broken like okay well who else does that work um, what is a religious leader essentially? Well, a religious leader is a professional sense maker. They're, that is what their skill set is. They help you to make sense of the world and what is happening to you. We have never needed that skill set more mm. um, in recent memory than we need it right now. You know, I think there's a real like that if religious leaders encounter young people in August as they come back to the school for the first time in a year and a half and they start talking to them about Galatians or, you know, <laughs> the Sabbath or something like shame on them, right? Like young people need to understand and be able to make sense out of what just occurred, like what just happened to our whole worlds over the, and, and, and what part of that matters moving forward. But I think more than just uh, for young people, it's true for society. Like, as you mentioned, like the church is well positioned to do that if they can stop seeing themselves as only defenders of, um, you know, sacred texts, core tenants, key teachings, gatekeepers in that way, and make at least a little bit of space for exploration and sense-making that they're so well-equipped to help people do, um, then I think you're right. Like they can leverage all of those skills. We, we know how to, like religious leaders know how to create rituals. They know how to help people more. They understand how to help people celebrate and move forward with life. Like all of this is embedded in all of our major faiths. That's beautiful. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, you know, we, we had that, we got sort of cut off for a bit there. Um, I, oh, sure. I wonder if there, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on that I didn't bring up? or uh, that you'd like to, any question that I should have asked that I didn't? Well, I think I would just say that, you know, it's, I, I'm really hopeful based on the data that we're seeing about the level of engagement that we can consistently see as young people uh, try to figure out their uh, spiritual selves. Um, but I don't think we should take it for granted. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's possible that there, that there is this, point at which you know yeah they'll sort of like cast around and, and and try to make some things but it's possible that we get too far down this road and it's going to get really difficult if not impossible to come back from and i don't i just i i think that's a, a worrisome in the sense that i'm not sure that a young person can be flourishing in their lives if their faith lives and spiritual selves are not also flourishing in, in whatever way that that means so i I, even though I don't think things are as bad as sort of folks might think when they when they see only the institutional participation data, I think that the, you know things are maybe a, a little bit more optimistic than that. Um, that's not to say that that it, that, that kind of and th that move away from institutions comes without concerns. If religious leaders don't step into those spaces, then then it does concern me. We're like you know how how do we how do we even do something as basic as make moral and ethical decisions? Um, if that trend continues 30, 40, 50 years from now. So the, there is an urgency to this for sure. Hmm. So part of your project is to say, uh, look, you're not, you're, it, it, tell me if this is right. Part of your project is, um, look, you're not losing these people as 
uh, as badly as you think you are or in the way that you think you are or for the reasons that you think you are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talk about it as like, uh, we tend to, at springtime, we tend to be a little bit more um, forward looking and hopeful. So the way we characterize it is that I think there's actually a, uh, a sort of expansion of the playing field there. There's a lot, in other words, there's a lot more young people open to the conversation about faith and spirituality than you might think if all you were looking at is the institutional affiliation and participation and attendance data. And probably the way to approach those folks is not the um, sort of, what, what do the data suggest about the, the notion that, uh, the appeal of the notion that America is a Christian nation and like peak America was, you know, 1955. Yeah, well, I mean, we haven't asked those questions, but I can't imagine anybody would care. <laughs> I mean, has any generation ever cared about the generations before them? I mean, that's just like, you know, the anti-establishment. I mean, that narrative, you know? though, that narrative, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what, so what made you think that, that the work that you're doing would fit i mean you were you were correct i'm I'm wondering what like uh that the work that you're doing would fit with what i'm up to with the podcast my project kevin you know so kevin who is our uh, media relations person he uh he and his intern had like scouted through all these things and then we just sort of went through them one at a time and looked at previous episodes and i was like oh yeah that one seems like you know we we sort of certainly there are strategic places where it's like all right, we really want people to understand that we're not coming at this from one faith perspective. So there's like, we want to make sure that we end up in like an explicitly Jewish space talking about Jewish issues. Um, And then part of that though, is like, while Springtide is not necessarily, you know, we're happy if academics use our work. And certainly I have an academic background. I think that work is important. It's, that's not our primary audience. So, but it's one of those things where it's like, let's find some places that seem to be like outwardly facing academic and that are concerned with some of these issues. And so this seemed to fit along those lines. You know, a lot of the people that I talk to uh, are, are interested only in the like, what are the action items, takeaways, you know, because it's impacting this information has the ability to impact the job they're doing today, tomorrow and the next day. Like, so they're, you know, very head down, um, which is great. And, and so, but sometimes it's nice to sort of raise up to a 50,000 foot view like this and, and think about bigger issues. Have you read, have you read Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne? No, no, I've seen it everywhere, but I have not read it yet. What about uh, Taking America Back for God? Yeah, who's... Um, Perry and Whitehead. Sam Perry, yeah. Um, yeah, those are, that Christian nationalism stuff is super interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, in a, I wish, you know, in a way that is, like, uh, concerning, right? <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. yeah, cool. Well, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that y'all reached out because this has been delightful. Oh, good. I'm I'm glad it's a fit for you too. I mean, I know it's that you're relatively, you know, these are some of your first episodes, so I'm excited to be on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was such a pleasure to meet you, and um, I hope our paths cross again in the in the future. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like you're asking a lot of. I mean, you know. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of a lot of us in sociology are just philosophers with data. <laughs> all of our early, you know, all the people that we count as like uh, the the founders of the discipline, they all come out of because you know at some point they have to come from somewhere, so they all come from philosophy backgrounds. I remember reading all that stuff in graduate school and thinking like, "Boy, this is fascinating!" And 
the pragmatist in me was like, but I, I'm not smart enough to figure out how to put it into action. I need like a, I need some actual methodology here to help keep me in line. Um, but I, this, it sounds like you're up to the great stuff. I'm sure I, I, you keep asking those questions. We keep having doing what we're doing at springtime. I'm sure we'll be back in conversation again. Yeah. 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 I, I really, I, I really, I talked to, to Perry and Whitehead a while back and I, and I, and I said to them and I'll say, like, I'm so grateful for the, the empirical work that y'all are doing. So we're not just out here speculating, right? Um, sure. It's so, it's so, I know that you know this, obviously, but I just want to express, I'm really grateful for the service that y'all are doing to the church. Mm-hmm.